Uh, hey, I'm Dave. Um, I'm, hi, thank you. Yeah, I'm one of the pastors uh, at Midtown. I'm going to open the LaCroix so the sermon can start. Um, so what we're going to look at, sorry, I already preached at Granny White this morning, and I'm really not sure how I felt about it, so we'll see what's about to happen, all right? Uh, what we're going to look at today in the book of Acts is uh, arguably... Uh, probably the most famous, or maybe you could almost say kind of infamous conversion stories in all of Christianity. Um, it's certainly, I think you could argue, was the most influential, uh, the conversion of Saul, who we know as Paul. Uh, it's kind of the Beatles of conversions, right? Like the ripple impact of this guy's conversion is massive. Um, he did a lot of missionary journeys. Uh, we know that from scripture. He was kind of the OG of church planting. Uh, the original church planter, um, and he wrote about a third of the New Testament. So a lot of what we have as far as the doctrine of understanding who the person of Christ is, what Christ accomplished on our behalf, how that should affect our lives, not just our salvation eternally, but like right now, how that should affect our lives. We have that from Paul. Um, so uh, Suzanne Williams is going to come up, and she's going to read for us. This is the story. Yeah, you can clap for the reader. Oftentimes, they're, they're faced with a, a, a trial of trying to read something that has a bunch of funny names in it, but I don't think you'll have to suffer that this morning. I'm but. safe. I said to Hudson on the way, what if I get a lot of hard words? And he said, you won't. Catherine Singleton gets them all. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. He was right. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, as well as uh, 26 through 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me 
so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, God, my heart and my mind as I teach, uh, may I only say what you want me to say, uh, Lord, and I pray that um, you would use... Uh, our study and our leaning into how you went and rescued our brother Saul to uh, restore us to the joy of our own salvation, uh, that you would awaken our hearts to uh, the similarities uh, in, in our story and his, uh, and help us, Holy Spirit, teach us, we pray, and reveal yourself to us in your name. Amen. All right, so um, this chapter starts with the word meanwhile, right? Meanwhile, it's like an episode of Lost where there's like, there's all these parallel stories going on, right? Uh, and they eventually kind of all congeal together. But um, let's, let's just talk for a second in case you haven't been here. If you haven't been, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, about what's going on because uh, this is, Acts is really about the life of the early church. Um, and there's a lot that's happening right now in the life of the early church, namely difficulty and persecution uh, at this point, the church is only a handful, maybe, of months old, uh, kind of like a newborn. Um, and there's a lot of resistance to what God is doing in and through his church and in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, from the outside and from the inside. Uh, if you remember a couple chapters ago, uh, Stephen, a guy, um, you know, who was, you know, basically performing all kinds of signs and wonders proclaiming the name of Jesus uh, and was being used by the Lord to spread the word. Um, the synagogue leaders at the day uh, basically were trying to shut that down, and so they had him arrested. They had him falsely accused and brought before the high priest in the Sanhedrin. Uh, scary moment, right, for Stephen, and you would think, okay, oh, gosh, I'd be quiet, but that's not what he did. Uh, he didn't back down at all. In fact, he doubled down and basically walked the, uh, the, the religious leaders of the day through kind of a, a whole touch point, touching all throughout the entire Old Testament about how they had always been blind, that they had always been unable to accept the words of God's prophets, that they had missed the message about the Messiah. And he basically says to this whole group of people, hey, all of your ancestors have missed it all along the way, and guess what? So have you. You've missed it as well. You've missed the message about the Messiah. You've missed the Messiah. In fact, you killed the Messiah. And so they stone him, Paul, Saul. Uh, we're going to get mixed up in the names here. Saul and Paul, the same guy. We'll hopefully explain something about that later. Paul was present. 
So Stephen gets stoned, right? And the church literally gets scattered at that moment from Jerusalem. You think everybody would go out really afraid, but that's not what happened. They went out as an army of preachers. Acts one or Acts, sorry, eight forces. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They went out as an army of preachers. And I think Jeremy shared this last year. It was kind of like Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, right? It's just kind of this concentric circle. It's like a stone getting dropped into a pond and the ripples go out, right? The gospel is going forward. And so God is even using all of this persecution, all of this work against like tamp it down. Don't let the gospel go forward. God is like, he's doing judo with it. You guys know what judo, how judo works? Judo is basically... I use all of your energy against you. I take all of your attack and I twist it around in some mercurial way and use it to defeat you, right? God was using this persecution for his mission because nothing, he's saying basically this, nothing can stand in the way of me accomplishing what I've set out to accomplish. All of your resistance, whatever, it won't do it. And so we get introduced in all of the midst of this persecution to the guy I like to, be, I like to call the chief resistor. Saul, right? And Saul doesn't understand that he's about to be one of the main characters, again, arguably the main character, apart from Jesus himself, in, in his redemptive work. Saul says, or Paul says this, uh, this is said about him in Acts 8. So Saul was there approving of them killing Stephen. So he was present there holding everyone's coats. I'm not gonna throw a rock, but... I'll hold everybody's jackets while they do, right? Approving of them killing Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen. They mourned deeply for him. But here's what it says about Saul. This is the guy who got converted. Saul began to destroy the church. Think about that word there for a second, destroy Literally, not like, hey, you know, kind of slander it or talk bad about it behind his people's backs with his buds. He set out to destroy it. How? Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Like, use your holy imaginations. Imagine if this afternoon somebody came into your house and dragged you and your wife out of your home and dragged you down to whatever jail we have, some jail around here, right? And threw you into prison. That was who this guy was. That's who Saul was. I'm gonna destroy this church. I, I, I will stop this at all causes, right? So the church is growing, the gospel is spreading, but Saul, what we see here, Saul is not going down lightly, right? I've worked too hard to be at the place that I am right now, to see some uneducated Galilean fishermen and a bunch of women take over the world with a different truth than the one I'm holding on to. Saul's not gonna go down lightly. And Saul, even later on, because we get a lot, of, this is probably one of the, the only examples we have, certainly the most, um, the largest example we have of someone who reflected on their own conversion. Saul reflects twice, or it's talked about twice more in Acts 22 and 26. And then little bits of his epistles and his writings, he's always kind of hearkening back to who he was before he was converted or what happened for him once he was converted, right? Saul, even in his own reflection, 
in his epistle in Philippians, self-describes how dug in he was to his position against Jesus in the Gospels, right? He, he describes himself in such a way that, that is, a, is a way of saying, I was completely against this. Here's what he says in Philippians 3. He's talking about having confidence in his own flesh, right? Confidence in who I am, that I'm right, that I've got it right. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. What is he doing there when he's saying that? I'm the Jew of Jews. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I sound like a boxer, like Muhammad Ali, right? I'm the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? I'm faultless in keeping the law. Right? He's giving us his identity prior to his conversion. This is who I am. I've got religious pedigree here. This is how I see myself. This is where my value lies. And I am set in that. I am set in my ways. I'm a part of a group called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? That's who I belong to. That's my way. That's my identity. And this new group, right? It's called the way. That's what they called the Christians in those days. So it's not, you know where the radio station got their idea from now? I guess you guys don't listen to Christian radio. Good for you. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. That was a bit of a dig. Uh, Paul, basically, he's in an identity showdown in this moment, in his conversion. Right? Jesus is, is, is interrupting his life, and he's saying, no, 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 it's my way. Right? I'm committed to my way, even though I'm wrong. John Stott said it like this, he was utterly sincere, but utterly misguided. He really believed what he believed was true, and he was wrong. And then this happens. That guy, to that guy, to someone who's that dug in, to someone who's that hard, who's that proud, this happens. He's traveling with arrest warrants from the high priest to go get everybody in that outer ring, Damascus, and say, we're dragging them all back to Jerusalem because we got to get this thing under control. Traveling with those arrest warrants, Jesus stops him in his tracks and he says, no. And in fact, even though you, you've completely got it wrong, I've got a completely different trajectory for your life. I'm going to confront you. I'm going to convert you. And then I'm going to commission you into a completely new way. Which those three things would be great points for the sermon, but they're not even the points for the sermon. <laughs> That's what happened. He was confronted, he was converted, and he was commissioned into an entirely different way. Now Paul, when he's, he's recalling this moment later on in Acts 22, and he adds a little detail as you do oftentimes, I don't know if you ever remember things and then you go back in and you talk about them again and you remember just a little bit more, right? Or a little detail, a little nuance. In Acts 22, when he says Jesus spoke to him, right? It says this, the God of our ancestors has chosen you. 
to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear words from his mouth, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Calling on whose name? Jesus' name. So Paul, he's saying, he chose me. He chose me to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear words from his mouth, and to be a witness to all people. And what he ultimately chose me to do is, is to receive a baptism a washing away of my sins that is a calling on his name. Now, I want you to just take that phrase, calling on his name, and if you take notes, put it in your notes. If you take notes in your head, park it in your head, because we're going to talk about names. What does it mean? Why did, why did Paul say Jesus said that? You're going to call on my name to deal with your sin. You're going to call on his name, Right? So that, we'll get to that here in a sec. That's what happened for Paul. And if you're a Christian this morning, you, you, I, we're all benefactors of his being brought to faith. But it would be real easy for us at this point to be like, wow, I mean, that's, that's a crazy conversion story. That's Paul's story, but what about ours? That's where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning is considering what about our story? Are there aspects of Paul's conversion story that are congruent with our own spiritual conversions, our own rebirths? And I would argue, yes. So here they are. Here are the three points. The blindness that we all share, the grace of sight, and then the goal of sight, okay? The blindness we all share, the grace of sight, and the goal of sight. Sip of the, sip of the LaCroix. All right. the blindness we all share. It would be easy to look at this conversion story and think, and it's true, now that's a conversion, right? Like, this is the guy they're gonna get to speak at conferences. <laughs> not me, not you, right? But, but someone like Paul. Because this story is not my story. I mean, that happened to Paul, but not me, right? I mean, I didn't have any blinding light you know, when I was out walking on a road, I don't remember Jesus speaking out loud to me in a way that I heard clearly, but nobody else heard, and they were confused and had to hand walk me to another city, right? I wasn't struck blind or stuck blind for three days while I awaited kind of what was next. So this is like, man, this is sensational, right? It's a good episode of Chosen. Wow, y'all, lighten up a little bit. We aren't, you know, that, that's, that's Paul's story, but what about us? We aren't, we aren't told why God chose to do this this way specifically, and we can speculate about it, and plenty of commentators did. But I, w- I want us to consider this for us. Although Paul is physically confronted and blinded as a part of his conversion story, what's very clear is that there is a spiritual blindness in him that is already present. That when Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road, he's already spiritually blind, right? He's, he's utterly sincere, but sincerely misguided, right? He was not just spiritually blind, he was doubly blind. He was blind to his spiritual blindness, right? So that's, that's, that's another way of saying he was self-deceived. And specifically, how was he self-deceived? 
You have to think with me here for a second. Uh, this part, I got personally a little lost in this week, um, but I know this was for me. <laughs> so I pray it's for you. I know the Lord took me to this place uh, for me. Specifically, here's what I think he was blind to, that in all of his religious efforts, and I'm using air quotes right now, right? Air quotes for those who might listen later. In all of his religious effort that he was doing for the Lord, right? All of his goodness was actually, he gets confronted here to find out it was actually working against the Lord. You are working against the Lord right now. You're persecuting the Lord just simply by persecuting his church. So what the Lord is saying, hey, all this religious effort that you're doing for the Lord, it's actually not working for me. It's working against me. And it's not accomplishing what you think it's accomplishing, Paul. We have to ask this question. I'm asking us to ask this question this morning. If it was against the Lord, if he was working against the Lord, who was he working so hard for? What was all the effort for? Why work so hard at something? This is where you should be thinking about you and I should be thinking about me. Why so zealous? Right? The further that this Christian way grew, the more murderous in his heart he grew against the way. The more he worked, angry, I'm working. He was working he was suffering to protect or to preserve something that God came in and ultimately said this, that's not what you should be caring about. Certainly not in the way that you are. And in fact, Paul, you're acting like this is what I care about. You're acting like this is what matters to me. When what your fanaticism, all of your effort all of your grinding, right? What that really shows is what you care about. And Jesus stops Saul in his tracks and says, brother, the way to what your heart most deeply longs for is different than the path that you're on. And the only way that you're gonna get off that path, the only way that you're gonna stop working so hard for the wrong thing is if I'm gonna, I have to intervene. I've got to pick you up off of that path. Let's go a little deeper. In Acts 26, another place where Paul talks about reflecting on his conversion, he says another little thing about what Jesus said to him on this road. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That was what we read in Acts, right? But he adds this. This is what he said. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you working so hard against me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Anybody have a goad in here? <laughs> Is that a phrase, get your goat? Is it get your goat or your goad? We'll look that up later today, right? A goad was a tool that a shepherd used to drive obstinate sheep in the direction that the shepherd wanted them to go because if you've for forgotten, we all get compared to sheep in Scripture as well. Sheep always want to go wrong directions, and they're not that bright. 
So a goad is something that the shepherd uses to drive the sheep in the direction that he wants to take him. What is the Lord saying when he's saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you. You're kicking against the goads. He's saying you're kicking against the very direction that the Lord is taking you. You're resisting him. You're kicking against my redemptive work and my plan for you, which would be for the, for the good of the world. You're, you're fighting a battle you can't win, but guess what? He was fighting it. Why? Why was he working so hard? Makes me want to sing, working hard for the money. Might not be that far off. Let me make a suggestion. And it's from what Jesus says to Ananias about his plan for Paul, right? I mean, this guy that he sends to Paul, Ananias, who's afraid, I don't want to go see him, right? He's the guy who throws people in jail, right? And what does he say? He tells him where to go, and he says this, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There's that word name again. He's going to call upon my name. He's going to be baptized and have his sins washed away and calling upon his name. And then he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Wait a sec. I mean, we know that Paul goes on to suffer a lot, right? You know, he's abandoned, he's shipwrecked, he eventually gets beheaded, right? That's tough. Uh, you know, he, he future suffers. And, and I'm, I know that, that certainly what Jesus is saying there is implying he's got suffering that's coming. But isn't it interesting that he says it like that to someone else? I'll show him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name. Do you, do you hear it? There's just a little hint of he thinks he's suffering for my name. I'll show him what it's going to mean to suffer for my name. You hear it? Because Paul, he had already been in suffering, right? He had already been suffering. Paul's whole life, if you're a Pharisee, the word Pharisee, it comes from, this, from a Greek word, pharisaim, which means to separate yourself, to basically, I'm going to level up right? And what the Pharisees did, they were an elite group of religious people who not only kept the law, remember he said, I'm flawless in keeping the law. They even sat around and like nuanced out and detailed the law and figured out ways to make the law harder than the law, adding to the law so that they could keep the laws that they created so that they could feel better about themselves than everybody else. That sounds like hard work, doesn't it? Like it's hard enough to keep the law of God, let alone to add to the law of God to try to keep that law on top of it. So Paul, he was already suffering. He was already working hard. Why am I belaboring this point? Well, here's why for me, because it's so insanely familiar to me that I have lived, I still can some days, many days, blind to the same thing that Paul was blind to. And it's this. Paul didn't see that in all of his goodness, in all of his religious effort, he was suffering for his name, not the Lord's. The Lord sees that. Paul doesn't. 
He was suffering for his name. And God, in his grace, in his love, in his mercy, even though it's a, it's a severe mercy, he is shining a light on Paul's blindness to that and Dave's blindness to that. Because Paul, in that passage in Philippians 3, he basically goes on to confess, I had no interest prior to my conversion in doing anything but suffering for my name. It was all about me, right? What did my cake say? Me loves me some me, right? So he goes on through all of that bragging, right? About I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? This is his rap battle. Pharisee, zeal, persecute the church, righteousness based on the law and flawless. Then what does he say? But wherever was a gain to me. So he was basically saying that this was all that mattered to me. This was my gain. I was winning. I'm winning, winning life. I now consider a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. What is more, I consider everything I just said about myself a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. I consider it garbage. All of my pedigree, it's garbage. Why? That I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Why is Paul working so hard at this point and why did God have to stop him in his tracks? Because Paul is confessing here, prior to Jesus' work in my life, I'm not interested in a righteousness that is given to me by grace. I don't, I'm not interested in the name that Jesus gives me. I'm interested, I'm suffering to make a name for myself. I don't want the righteousness that's imputed to me by Christ. I want to be right in the eyes of God and the eyes of everyone else in this room because I earned it. That's why he's comparing himself here, right? In Israel, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day. When were you circumcised? Tenth? Oh, I'm better, right? Hebrew of Hebrews over here, right? Perfect law keeper. You keep most of it, but I keep all of it, right? All of his rightness, his name was comparative righteousness. Man, I get that. So much of my life has been marked by that. Because this is true about me, it's true about Paul, and I'm, I'm begging you to believe it's true about you. We are all suffering for some name. We are all passionate to get a name, to make a name. Whether that's through being good, or being successful, or being liked, or being beautiful, or being accomplished, whatever. We're all suffering for some name, and the question is whose? You want to have some fun this afternoon? It might not be that much fun, but it could lead to something good. Just write down this question. What names are you suffering for? What are, what are the names that you're working hard for? Here's some of the ones that are done. Approved. Successful. Beautiful. Skinny. Come on. Everybody should laugh at that one. <laughs> Enough. Am I enough? Am I smart? Do I belong? Am I a good parent? Am I a good spouse? Am I a good father? We're all suffering for some name. And the question is whose? We're all calling on some name. Here's my calling card. 
I got to go back to my hometown last week. Jeremy and I were reflecting on this. He got to go back to UGA last week. God's working out some weird things between he and I and how this is all going. But he spent all this time in UGA, you know, having the Lord walk him through just, man, look how far he's brought me. And I have that same experience when I go to my hometown. I went, my parents are moving into an assisted living situation, which is tough. But every time I go to my parents' house and I sleep in the basement, uh, it digs up a lot of stuff being down there in my parents' basement, right? It's kind of metaphorical and real. There's, there's lots of nostalgia down there. But I routinely have an experience every time I'm at my folks' house, every time I'm in my hometown, because I grew up there and I went to college there. So I spent the first 21 years of my life there. So I experienced a lot of gratitude and thankfulness for how much the Lord has done in my life. I look at it right now and I'm like, geez. But I always experience shame when I'm home. Every single time. I can count on it. When I'm back there, and here's what happens, is like Satan gets out this giant spotlight and shines on all of my mistakes, all of my poor choices, all the ways that I sinned greatly, and I did. But here's what he shined the light on most this time, and the Lord had to work me through this and preparing even for this sermon. Here's the thing I felt acutely this time was this. Not only did you do all that, but you were such a, such a hypocrite. You were so blind to how bad it really was, and you were trying to keep everybody else from seeing it too. That I worked hard. I spent so much of my life, I still can spend so much of my life working so hard at the image, at the posturing, right? Because where I grew up, that's what mattered. It wasn't what was true. It was what everyone else thought about you that mattered. That was what made my name. That was the name that I was suffering for. And so sitting in my parents' basement, even this week, the Lord was along with the enemy, shining a light on that and showing still how blind I was to myself. How much of my rightness was comparative. And so similar to Paul, the only way, <laughs> the only way that I began to even see some of this was is that Jesus, like Paul, he had to stop me. He had to intervene. He had to reveal himself to me. He had to reveal myself to me. Because if I don't see myself correctly, I can't see him correctly. And likely, I'm just looking like Paul for a God of my own making who plays by my rules and who approves of me the way that I approve of myself. Not the real Jesus. So Paul, he was blind before he was blinded. And I think a big part of what he was blind to is, is he was suffering for his name. His name was his calling card. His name was what he was calling on, not the Lord's. And my invitation to us, because it was the invitation the Lord gave to me and it wasn't the funnest, but it's been good, I swear, is might that be true of you? that you're suffering for a, for a name when you've already been given one, right? Might that be true of you? Because if you've been truly converted, if you're in Christ, we've all had this experience, at least some moment of this experience, even though we'll, re we'll regress, that's what Romans 7's about, you're gonna go back into living to suffer for your own name, so don't beat yourself up about that, we'll talk about that here in a sec. 
you've at least had some moment of reckoning with Jesus when you've come to grips with that your life, whether it was religious and being good or irreligious and being bad, was ultimately all about you, right? It was about you and your name. And you, you had a moment, a moment by grace through faith where you realized that if I was ever gonna be about anything other than myself, Jesus was gonna have to do something for me. He was gonna have to intervene. He was gonna have to give me spiritual sight. He was gonna have to bring me from darkness to light. He was gonna have to make me his chosen instrument because I don't want to play his song. I wanna play mine. That's point two. Into the midst of that hard-hearted pride that I struggle with comes the grace that Paul struggled with, the grace of sight. Jesus says, Paul, you think you're so worthy. You're so unworthy, but that doesn't make you unusable for me. It's in fact, your unworthiness and you getting, to, getting comfortable with understanding the depth of that is gonna be your, that's gonna be your magic sauce. That's what's, what's gonna make you powerful is your weakness, your inability. But I'm gonna have to give you sight. That's why Proverbs says, eyes that see, ears that hear, the Lord has made them both. It's what Ezekiel 36 was talking about, a passage that Paul would have known frontwards and backwards in the prophets. God says, you're not gonna be able to keep the law. I'm gonna have to give you a new heart. I'm gonna have to give you a new spirit. I'm gonna have to liberate your will to actually follow my decrees and obey me. You can't do it. Paul would have known that, right? But clearly he didn't see it. He missed it. Why? Because he needed the grace of God to open up his eyes. And that's part of our conversion too. Have you come aware? Would you re-come aware to the blindness that you lived under? Will you allow yourself to be humbled, to see that you didn't get it and that is getting it? That just like Paul, if Jesus didn't come after me and stop me in my tracks and reveal myself to me, my whole life would have been just suffering for my name. So it's the blindness we share, that's the grace of sight. And lastly, it's this, the goal of sight. Because this is true about Paul's conversion and it's true about our own. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, he, he ditches what he was saying in, in Philippians, or sorry, uh, yeah, Philippians 3, about Hebrew of Hebrews and all this stuff. He says this in, in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So all that stuff that I used to say, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am, I've got it reduced down to this. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am who I am because Jesus did something for me, nothing else. But then he goes on to say this, that grace was not without effect. So his grace to me isn't just to kind of polish me up and make me this little pretty Christian trophy and put me on his shelf. It's actually to catapult me out into the world, right? To make trouble for the gospel in many ways. That's why he says, what? You are my chosen, Ananias, this guy's my chosen instrument. You should think literally electric guitar or whatever your favorite instrument is, you know? Right? Saul, you are my instrument. I've got you in my hands now and I'm gonna make some noise through you. I'm gonna go public through you now. I'm gonna send you back out and it's crazy. The very thing that he was persecuting. I mean, that's why people were so freaked out about him. It's like, wait a second, you don't win 80 like this, right? 
He needed to do a couple years, you know, of, of counseling. He needed to go to seminary, right? Whatever he needed to do. Like, we're not going to let him preach quite yet, right? No, immediate. Immediately, what he talked about changed. His relationships changed. That's what we see with Ananias and Barnabas, which was tough for them too, right? That's, that's a sign of a conversion, the impossible relationships, relationships that you never thought you would ever find yourself in, you find yourself in. That you begin to pursue and love people that maybe in some ways you loved to hate. Because we all have people we love to hate because we all love ourselves for the wrong reasons. Not for the reasons that Jesus loves us. He's got a goal for this site. Paul's agenda has changed. He went from calling the shots to following the leader. He went from, from resisting to obeying, from kicking against the goads to going with the flow, from suffering, being passionate about a name other than his. So I'll close with this because I need to close. If your conversion story seems less spectacular than this, I'm gonna invite you to, to do something this week. It may be because you haven't gotten in touch with the depth of your sin recently. That was something that Paul never got too far away from. In fact, if you follow Paul's self-descriptions throughout scripture, I think he goes, he starts with like, I'm the least of the apostles, like I got picked last for kickball, but I still made the apostle team, Right? Least of the apostles to then like, I'm the least of the saints. And then I think by the end, he's calling himself what? The chief of sinners. I'm the worst. I'm as someone who is abnormally born. I'm, I'm, I'm an aborted thing, yet saved by grace. If your conversion story seems less spectacular than Paul's, maybe it's because you haven't gotten in touch with the depth of your blindness, of your sin, of how much you're suffering to make a name or to find a name rather than receive one by grace. And I'll just, I'll warn you, I'm gonna give you one trick of the enemy and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Anytime you look at your sin, because that's not very in vogue these days, right? The answer to like, Sin and low self-esteem is, is focused on something good and some place you're winning, right? Like, or work real hard to overcome this bad area with this area that you're doing better in and we'll just kind of like frosting over the brownie, right? The bad brownie gets covered with the good frosting, right? Every time you look at your sin is gonna be an opportunity for shame and trust me, Satan wants you to feel shamed. And how he wants you to deal with your shame is he's gonna appeal to your pride. And he's gonna say the way you deal with that shame is by doing something good, by overcoming it, being, doing something proud. If, you, if your heart condemns you this week if, as you look at your sin, you're not looking at your sin with Jesus. You're looking at your sin with someone else. If you're looking at your sin with Jesus, Jesus will not condemn your heart for that because he's greater than your hearts, right? And where... I'm looking at it with Jesus as my, you've seen the gospel chart, if I had to draw it, you know, kind of like this, like a greater than, less than sign. 
as my understanding of my sin increases, my understanding of his grace increases. And the cross is very small when my sin is very small. But the bigger my sin gets, the bigger his grace gets and the bigger he gets. If you try to compensate with your shame by success, that's the law. Paul got that. The gospel is a different way. The cross gets bigger. Jesus' name gets bigger. It stops being about having my name in my mouth and it starts being about having his name in my mouth. And we are restored to the joy of being saved. Let me pray. Lord, I still so many days can live so blind to what you've done. Uh, willfully, I, I'm, I, am, I am, like Peter said, nearsighted and blind. I choose to shut my eyes to your grace because I, I don't want to be right because of your character. I want to be right because of mine. Unfortunately, I fail. <laughs> Maybe I should say fortunately I fail. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you don't let the illusion uh, continue too long, that you stop us in our tracks, and I pray you would do that for my brothers and sisters. Whatever road they're on today, if they need to be stopped, if they need to be stilled, if they need three days of silence, of prayer and of fasting, would you give them the grace of that interruption to wake them up to the fact that you have a different way it is the way, the truth, and the life that there is freedom in you that cannot be found in all of our effort. And that the verdict that we have in you, Jesus, is better than any verdict we will ever get from anyone or anything in this world. Thank you. In your name, amen.